If you open your scriptures this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to continue our study of 1 Peter. I am going to read today, starting in verse 13, actually going to read through verse 17, but it should come as no surprise to you, we're not going to look at all those verses today, but it's a, they're all linked together, and so I want to, I want to read them together. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a God who has spoken. We've been reminding ourselves of that wonderful truth as we've been reading through Psalm 119 on our Sundays together. But Lord, you not only have spoken and superintended so that we have in written form the things you've said, but you say your Holy Spirit also carries out that teaching ministry in our hearts that we could understand more completely and fully what you did say. So Lord, we pray for your Spirit's teaching ministry within us in this time. Help us to understand what you've said. Recognize how it's supposed to apply in terms of our thinking, in terms of our actions. And then, Lord, through that same Holy Spirit, enable us in our obedience as we align with you in your purpose. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last uh, two weeks, we've been looking at verses 6 through 12 in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verses that introduce us to the inevitability of trials and suffering as believers while in this world. And verses that also talk to us about the wonder of our salvation, lest we fall into that trap of becoming a bit complacent about it. In verses 6 to 9, we saw that the believers are not exempt from trials. God never hides that fact, even though misguided people try to hide that fact. But God never hides that fact from us. He never makes any false promise to people just to get them to follow him that, oh, I'm going to put a hedge around you and no bad things will happen to you. He never says that. Uh, neither should we. And what we also learned in that is that God uses times of trial in many different ways, but one of the things that he does in the midst of it is to help us know the truth of about our salvation in a way that being outside of trials never drives quite home in the same depth. Uh, we can know a truth out of the very reality of those difficult trials. Uh, one of the theologians put it this way, that we can find the assurance that is found nowhere else except in affliction. And I like that, because that really does get at the heart of what these verses are saying. Uh, God is certainly doing more than that in the midst of difficult times in our lives. 
But even that is enough to understand. And all of us who know Christ have had that experience, I know, where in the midst of some very hard times, we've sensed the very presence of the Lord, and we've had an assurance of our salvation that really doesn't come other places. God has used it. In verses 10 to 12, we were talking about the wonder of our salvation, and it was underscored for us by remembering how the prophets and the angels responded to the gospel itself and the, the promise of the coming gospel, the promise of coming grace. Uh, it's meant to be a protection for us against that sort of sense of dullness or complacency that can creep in when we're not in trials. Uh, Sometimes being outside of trials is a bigger danger to us in our Christian walk than being in the trial because we can become dulled and complacent. We talked about the awe of the prophets as they received prophecy from God and saw the wonder of the promised salvation that was to come. They wanted to find out more and more about that grace. And it told last week we were saying that they searched diligently, inquired carefully to find out who and when all of these prophetic passages were pointing. But the answer that they got was that, well, bide your time. These, these promises are to be fulfilled. But you will not know the who completely until it's revealed. And, of course, the who was Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh to dwell among us, revealed at Bethlehem. Now, they knew parts of that, of course, but the full picture of it, the wonder of it, and the fact that it was the very Son of God coming into the world, uh, all of that was awaiting a particular time in God's unfolding ministry. And the when, as I say, the who and the when, Bethlehem, <laughs> the cross, and so forth, all became clear to us. That we see it in a way they couldn't, but they were questing after it because they knew it was so amazing that they were desperate to find an answer to it. Then we added to that the wonder that it told us that the angels experienced over the promised salvation. The, the words that are used in First Peter here is that they longed to look into these things. The angels are very aware of the reality of the human problem. They saw it unfold in the garden. They saw the reality knowing who God is, that sin creates an impossible barrier to overcome. They were aware of some of the temporary answer that God had created for Adam and Eve and for others up through the time of Christ, a temporary sacrifice for sin to cover until the full sacrifice would come. But they didn't see either how God was going to work all of this out. Lord, how, how are you actually going to save corrupted, fallen mankind? How can this be? They knew enough about God that they saw the dilemma in ways we perhaps never would. It took the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection to satisfy those angelic longings. Then they understood. Salvation would take nothing less than the very second person of the Trinity becoming man and dying for mankind's sin and being raised from the dead. I mean, nothing less than that would solve it. And here's the point. What prophet in the Old Testament could possibly have guessed all of that? What angel in the very presence of God could have guessed that that was God's plan? And who of us could have guessed it? And the answer is, none of them and none of us. It took a God who revealed that, or we would never have understood 
what it was about. I see great, amazing things in that, but I'll stop there. Uh, and we'll move on today. Now today, starting in verse 13, the scene shifts, the focus shifts a bit from the wonder of salvation to the issue of growth as disciples. Uh, it starts off, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And as I always say when we come to something like that in the scriptures, when you see the word therefore, check to see what it's there for. All right? There's, it's, it's a bridge word always for us. And therefore, in this case, beginning of that verse 13, is referring us back to the wonder of salvation. In other words, if this salvation, this amazing salvation, was so awe-inspiring to the prophets and to the angels, and should be now to us, therefore, if that's the case, then get going. Get moving. Uh, prepare your mind for action. Having found this great salvation... The right action on our part is to get growing. Make a difference in the world. Make a difference in serving the one who worked out this amazing answer, of which there, no one else could have worked it out, to save lost men and women. Salvation, this amazing wonder of salvation, is but the beginning of God's intention, not the ending of it. For us as his children... It's how we start. It's not how we end. Uh, he wants us growing. He wants us serving. He wants us being productive in his ministry. He, he has left us here for purposes. And so he says, listen, therefore, in light of the wonder of this salvation, which now you have, let's get going. You know, let's get some action moving here. And... He tells us in the verses I read to you today, and we'll look at it over the next this week and next week, maybe perhaps a week even after that. He gives us three commands that intersect this issue of getting going. Uh, three commands that intersect what it means now is redeemed people to act on the wonder of the salvation that's been granted to us. In verse 13 that we'll look at today, he says, I want you to set your minds. Prepare your minds for action. Set your hope fully. So we're going to be looking at that issue. Set your minds for action. In verses 14 to 16 that I read to you, he says, I want you to set your wills on holiness. There's a certain way I want you living. Uh, there's a certain number of things I want you doing, but there's a certain way I want you living. Now is my child too, is my redeemed child. And then in verse 17, he talks about setting our hearts on the fear of the Lord. So he's talking about minds, he's talking about wills, he's talking about hearts, and we'll look at these things in that order. But let's continue to look at verse 13 today. Here's the fact. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God says, here's the fact. You need to prepare your minds for action or you won't grow. You need to prepare your minds for action, or you simply won't grow. Preparing our minds for action, it could be translated literally by girding up the loins of your thinking. And those of you that have King James Version around, see that's exactly how the King James translates that. Uh, girding up the loins of your mind. 
This word translated in the ESV, preparing, means literally to tuck in, to gather up, to gird up. It was a cultural term. It was a cultural idiom in the Greek. It described uh, taking a, a robe or a tunic and tucking it into the sash or the belt so that you didn't get tripped up when you were trying to do work or you were trying to move fast or run. It was a tucking in process. A very appropriate word in that era, you remember, because basically that's what men, that's what women were wearing, uh, robes, tunics, things like that. Not like us where we had pants. You really, if you were going to get down to serious working, you had to do something to make sure you weren't tripping up. And certainly that's true if you were running. And that's true whether you were a man or a woman. So this was the picture. This was what that word meant. And so the ones who were receiving the New Testament would have understood that. They would have said, oh, okay, we know what that word means. He says, okay, get your head girded up, preparing. And if you don't do that, you're going to fall on your face. I mean, I, I didn't live at that era, but my guess is it would have been a pretty embarrassing thing to trip over your robe, you know. I trip over stuff today. So, I mean, I, I have sort of a sense of what that might be. But that was kind of, uh, you feel somewhat ashamed, like, what happened? Well, what's this bruise on your nose? I tripped over my robe. You know, everybody looks at it. So it's a very embarrassing thing. But what God is doing, he's taking that image, and let's not mistake it. He's taking that image, and he said, how much more embarrassing should it be for you as a believer if you trip over your mind? You ought to be vastly more embarrassed than that person in that era who tripped over their robe. Because your mind wasn't where it needed to be. And of course, what that means is that you and I can trip over our minds. I mean, it has no, the, the, the challenge has no meaning apart from that possibility. We can trip over our minds if we're not careful. So it ought to quickly occur to you, well, what does he mean by mind here? <laughs> what, what is this word? And it is the Greek word dianoia. And the Greek word dianoia is used to describe thinking skills, uh, critical thinking skills, to try to get it close to what we would be using and understanding by the use of that word in our current culture. Uh, it describes how a person in their mind weighs out options, tries to look at data and determines what's the best thing to do, how, I ought, how ought I to act, and what choices should I make. Do you, you follow what that's about? It's that sort of thinking. It's not like, how much can I memorize? It's, it's like, how practical can I walk? You know, I'm, I'm weighing the options, and here's, here's the choice I'll make. It's that thinking that is the meaning of dianoia in the Greek. And that's what's being used here. He says, listen, get your head prepared. Get your thinking prepared. God created you and I with the ability to think. He's the one that gave us dianoia, by the way. One of those things that distinguishes us from the animals. Uh, we can actually think that way. We can weigh the options. We can reflect on past and future and all of that sort of thing. That's what partially what it means to be created in God's image. We have that capability. But the wonder of it here in this verse, God's warning us. He says, listen, this, this is a mixed blessing in a way for you. Uh, you can think, and that can help you, or you can think, and that can hurt you. Uh, 
the thinking sort of neutral. How you focus it is the issue. It can either be positive for you or it can be a negative for you. We can think in ways that guarantee that we're going to trip ourselves up. We can think in ways where we're going to be picking ourselves up off the ground, embarrassed and red, because we stumbled and we had no one to blame but ourselves. That's the image of verse 13. Therefore, it ought to make us a little sober. <laughs> it's like, well, this is, a, this is like an in-your-face sort, of, uh, sort of image, God. What, what, what is this about? What is this about? We need to be involved in making sure that our minds, our dianoia, work in our favor, not against us. I was thinking of that classic passage in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24, that talks about the Christian life in these terms. I'll read it to you. He says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, then put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You know, three pieces of Christian growth that are talked about in Ephesians 4. Stop doing what you used to do. All right, well, that's, that's good. Start doing what you're supposed to do. All right, well, that's good. Put on, put off. And he also says, be renewed in your minds, in your dianoia. All three are necessary. You can't just focus on what you're supposed to stop and what you're supposed to start. You've got to focus on your thinking. You've got to focus on the way you're processing stuff. Because if you're not being renewed in the spirit of your minds, you're going to stumble. You're going to trip up. Even when you've set your mind on saying, I want to put off the old and I want to put on the new, all that means is you put on the right set of clothes, but you can still trip over the rope. You know, God is saying, listen, I want you getting your mind renewed. I want it changed. And when we are thinking properly, when we are focused properly, then we're ready for action. When we're focused properly, we're ready to grow. When we're focused properly, we're ready to be used by God. If we're not focused properly, those things just become so many words. You know, and God says, hey, listen, I want these to be realities for you. I want you growing. I want you doing this stuff. Now, the question that comes up at this point, I think logically, is why does God start there? Why does God begin with this focus on the mind, the dianoia? Why, why does he do that? Uh, if we think about it for a little bit, and we think about human nature, we can actually get people to do things quicker. They're more easily moved by emotional things. They're, they're more easily moved by, serve, by an emotional service, some sort of emotional experience, some sort of emotional environment. You know, people can get moved and swayed and then pushed forward. And you say, well, that sounds, that looks more efficient. Why don't we just come up with, why doesn't God just have us come up with, thing, with creating atmospheres that will move people? And the answer to that is pretty straightforward. Our minds are much more reliable than our emotions. It, no matter how deeply your emotions are moved, in a situation, let's say a service. You move away from the service, 
And whatever emotions were fostered and created in the service are now gone because emotions are very dependent on circumstances. And if that's what's happening only to get people going in their Christian walk, they will become forever addicted to emotionalism and finding an endless despair because once they got out of the emotional situation, everything starts to collapse again. You know, it's like I was really highly motivated during the service. Four hours later, it's like, well, what happened? You know, there's no... And so that's the picture. God starts not with the emotions. Not that we're not emotional creatures and God addresses emotions, and we're going to look at that. But he doesn't start there. He says, I don't want you to play the easy game because it's ultimately a self-defeating game. That's not how growth begins. Growth begins here in your thinking. Now, we're talking about redeemed people, of course. You know, not, not those who have not yet been redeemed. We're focused on those who've been redeemed. Why? Why are the minds such a key? Because it is there that action emerges, that persists, independent of circumstances. Remember we were talking earlier about difficult times and hard times? Independent of circumstances, our minds move us forward. By the way, that is why I believe very strongly from the scriptures that God wants a church built around the teaching of the word, not the exhorting of people except insofar as the word exhorts. And, of course, it does in certain places. The church isn't a place where people are trying to, like, have a pep rally so that they're all, boy, really moved to be. No. Although, I will admit, sadly, often churches become that, uh, or entertainment centers or something. But God says, no, no, no. Uh, Real change, real growth comes up with girding up your head. And part of girding up your head is getting the Word of God in it. That's why teaching is intended by God to be central to the church. And by the way, in keeping with that, that single fact diagnoses the tremendous malaise of the church in America. There's very little teaching anywhere. goes on. I mean, we're not the only place there's teaching. I'm just saying, generally speaking, people are not exposed to the teaching of God's word. So how do you expect their minds to get girded up if they never get anything that's going to transform their minds? Minds are transformed by the transforming scriptures. Remember, they're sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, they can pierce to the deepest level of a person. They teach us. They rebuke us. They correct us. They train us. Uh, It's the word that does that, not other things. Well, certainly being in the Word ourselves, sitting under the teaching of the Word is important. But this passage builds on that and assumes that that would be happening. And it says, what else do we need to do? How how else do we go about preparing our minds? How else do we run the race without stumbling on our face? And he says, well, there's two things tied to this. Number one... Being sober-minded, and number two, setting your hopes properly. Get your dianoia, that thinking process, focused on sober-mindedness and focused on hope-setting. Then things will start to work together. So let's look at these. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, 
Set your hopes fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your mind begins with a commitment to being sober-minded. Sober-minded? What's that about? It's the Greek word nepho. It mean, nepho means to be calm, to be collected, to be circumspect in your thinking. That's what it means. It is used in the Greek language to describe an individual who is free from illusion and delusion. It describes an individual who is free from intoxicating influences, whether they're drugs, whether they're alcohol. But we all know there's other forms of intoxicating influence that can cloud people's thinking. He says, no, the person who is nepho, calm, collected, circumspect, free from illusion and delusion, free from intoxicating influences... Uh, one, of the, one of the scholars said, listen, if you want to know what Nepho is about, it describes the person who has their wits about them. I like that phrase because it gets close to it. In other words, they're thinking clear. You know, they got their wits about them. They're, they're, not, they're not, you know, dulled in their senses. They're not thinking bad. They got their wits about them. God says, listen, I want you committed to sober-mindedness. You know, it's just sober-minded. We could be drunk with wine. We can be drunk with illusion and delusion. Uh, God says, doesn't he in Ephesians 5? I don't want you drunk with those things. I want you filled with my spirit. Not under the influence of the drink. I want this reality in your life. That's sober-mindedness. Now, to be sober-minded, nepho is the opposite of being irrational. At least it's used that way frequently by the Greeks in their writings. The opposite of being irrational. It's the description of somebody who has some disciplined thinking over against unruly thoughts, you know, just going everywhere. Uh, Being disciplined, focused, not irrational. In talking about the role of those in ministry in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, we encounter the word nepho again. Listen to this. As for you, Timothy, under direction of the Holy Spirit, talking, I mean, Paul, under direction of the Holy Spirit, talking to Timothy, says, as for you, always be sober-minded. The Greek word nepho. He says, always be sober-minded. Enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But you notice how it begins. Be sober-minded, because those other things don't work out so well unless you're sober-minded. You've got to have nepho. You've got to be focused. Our mind can trip up our feet spiritually if our thoughts are not under control. If we don't focus our thinking process properly. By the way, one of the implications of that is it must mean that we can actually make choices about how to focus our minds. I mean, this would be a useless command if we really couldn't make such choices. Now, do we need God's enablement to carry out such choices? Yes. But God's enablement doesn't take the form of enabling you to make the choice. It takes the form of enabling you to carry out the choice. We under command here and other places are called to make a decision to let our minds focus right. we got to do that. 
We keep coming to God and saying, well, God, you know, my mind's really unruly and it's going lots of directions. I want you to go in and change all of that. And God says, well, I can get at that, but I'm not going to change it because what you have to do first is make a decision to start focusing your thinking properly. What you and I need to do is admit to ourselves and then admit to God that I actually do make choices about what I think about. Now, sometimes I feel like I can't pull my head away from what I've made a choice to think about. But God says, lay it out for yourself. You've made a choice at some point here as to what you're going to think about, how your process is working out. So we admit that to ourselves and admit it to God. Then we're moving somewhere then. We can say, okay, I see. You're right. Our thoughts become the fruit of the choice. Because if I've chosen to focus my mind soberly, my thoughts that emerge will be, drift, be coming out of that. If I've chosen to focus my mind in the more irrational manner, then lots of irrational things will happen. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this, but I think if we reflect on our life a little bit, uh, we can see both dynamics operating, right? Uh, we make choices... And then they either help us or we, they trip us up. You know, that's, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Uh, and so God says, don't allow your mind to wander without discipline into the wrong areas. It's all what you see, isn't it, in Philippians 4.8, where we're told, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I mean, once again, that's a command that is meaningless if you can't make choices as a believer. Now, we're talking about believers. It's meaningless. All it would be is like this, almost a tease, wouldn't it? It's like you say, oh, I'd really like to be, think that way, but I know I can't. God says, oh, no, 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 you can do that. Now, you're going to need my help to walk and see it all through. But you've got to make choices. You focus on these things. I'm going to be at work in you. The Holy Spirit will be working in you. We're going to see some of this stuff emerge. You don't make the choice. There ain't going to be any work. We make that choice. I was thinking of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. And although the context is different, the statement is made that we would take every thought captive. Listen, you don't take thoughts captive unless it's possible to captivate thoughts. Uh, in the same way for the believer, it's possible to captivate thoughts. Now, we need God's enablement to see that carried out, of course. All right, so there's where you begin, a commitment to sober-mindedness. Well, it's not really where you begin. You begin by coming to know Christ. You begin by getting into his word. You begin by sitting under the teaching of his word, and letting the word of God dwell in you richly to be moving in your mind. But having done that, then God says, I want you to make some choices about what you think about. What are you thinking about? And focus your mind on these things. And we come before the Lord and say, well, I wasn't really doing that, but I was hoping you'd overrule that. Do you really think God's going to do that? Then he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your mind for action involves setting your hopes properly. You can't grow as a disciple if your hopes focused on the wrong things. 
What do you hope for as a believer? What are you focusing your hopes on? What are you clinging to as the fruit of your faith? You know, what I'm really after. Are you focusing in on prosperity? As I'm really following the Lord and I'm hoping it pays off this way. You know, uh, freedom from trials? Well, I'm going to follow the Lord and then he's got to hold up his side of the bargain and there won't be any trials. I mean, what are you hoping in? What are you, what's driving your determination to follow him? People can have scenarios built out in their minds of how they're expecting God to do something and how they're really mandating that God do it. And then if it doesn't happen that way, then God's not proven faithful. He's not done what he said he'd do. What is it that we cling to? And God says, listen, I want you to focus your hope on that which can't be touched by the world, that which can't be touched by your trials, that which can't be touched by your age, that which can't be touched by your physical condition, and that which can't even ultimately even be touched by whether you're dead or alive. I want you focusing your hope on that sort of thing. What are you clinging to? What are you hoping in? He says, place your hopes in the grace that's to be given at the second coming. The fulfillment of that grace that the prophets were longing to see and know more about. We already have received saving grace. That's who he's writing to now. So he's not talking about, well, maybe someday I'll be saved. No, you're already saved. That's, that's not what it's about. It's, the, the grace is used both in terms of saving grace as it relates to the gospel and salvation, but it's also used in the broad way to refer all God's undeserved sort of blessing and benefit to us. Earlier in the first chapter, in verses 3 to 5, he talked about some of that grace. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. He's already talked about the hope. <laughs> he says, this is what you focus your hopes on. Get resting in the wonder of your salvation, the wonder of God's great promise, the wonder of what will be true if he should take you between now and when Jesus returns and Rest in those things. That's, those things will be there no matter what happens. Let that be the foundation that you're hoping in. God never disappoints that hope. But I can guarantee you, you run a close to 100% likelihood of being disappointed with any other hope in your life. In fact, I've ministered, been in the ministry many, many years. I've never met anyone who wasn't disappointed in something they'd been hoping in. That's the way life works out. Things don't turn out to be what you were hoping they would be. Uh, But I've also never met someone who was understanding their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who wasn't continuing to hope in that and rest in that. Uh, So what are you hoping in? You have to set your mind on the right things. In Hebrews 11, this was one of the undergirding messages there. In talking about Abraham and then the other patriarchs, listen to these words. 
In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing exactly where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. In other words, out there, the real focus of his hopes. Later on, in verse 13, talking about all the patriarchs, these all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, like the prophets did in their, in their prophecies, you remember? Seeing it out there, wow, here it is. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. These people who speak make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire the better country. That is, the heavenly one. And therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. Because he's prepared that very thing for them. Remember the beginning of the third through verse five here in in the first chapter of First Peter, this great inheritance that he has out there for us. We're going to be like Abraham, like the, like the other patriarchs. We're looking forward to the city that has foundations. Uh, we're desiring the better country. Our hopes are resting in the heavenly country. When that's the case, then we're ready to get down to the business of getting ahead in our spiritual walk. We have less than that you're simple to trip up, and so am I. We don't even have to make much work for the enemy of our souls. Because we're our own worst enemy if we haven't tucked in our minds, you see. So we've got to tuck in the mind, that's where we start, and then we build on that. And next time, we'll shift from talking about tucking in our minds to talking about our wills and how God says, I want your will set on living a holy life, on holiness. Well, may God use this in our minds and our thinking. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this day. and We thank you that we can even have more extended time together this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the riches that are ours in Christ the inheritance that lies ahead. Help us in the focusing of our minds that we wouldn't be tripping ourselves up. And we'll give you thanks and praise for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.